way that we will ever know anything about God is if he tells us, if he reveals himself to us. And that has a lot to do with the fact that we're limited as human beings. There are some things that we can't begin to experience. And so I don't know right now what's happening just on the other side of Jupiter. Something is. There's something going on out there, but I don't know what it is. The reason I don't is because I can't see it. I can't feel it. I can't hear it. I can't taste it. And I can't smell it. Because what we know in life as human beings, we know through our senses. Unless something comes from outside of our senses and communicates to us. And so I can't know, because it, like, I think that God is in the room right now. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say here, he's here? Like any of us who are believers in Jesus, I think would say that God through his spirit is present in the room with us right now. And yet, you can't touch him, you can't smell him, or hear him, or see him, or hear him. Now some of you might say, actually I can't. What are you laughing about, Hope? Did I, did, I, did I miss it? Did I say? I repeated myself? Okay. I thought that's what she was doing. She was mocking me because I can't count to five. But we can't begin to really experience God outside of our senses unless God comes and reveals himself. That's what we said at the end of last week. And I really think that that's true. Well, this morning, I want to start moving into those elements that are central to our faith, to the core elements of our faith. And as you can see from the screen, I think it's fairly important, actually, that we start with who God is. I think it's really important that we actually start with who God is if we're going to talk about what is the core of our faith. Does somebody tell me why you think that's a good idea? Like, I don't think I'm the only one who would see that that's a good idea. Who else would say that's a good idea, and why? I can't believe unless you know where your belief is, is sent to Okay? Okay? Yeah, we can't have a faith or a belief unless there's, unless there's something that we recognize is the, um, constitutes that faith or that belief. I would agree. There's at least one other good reason why we need to start with God. Yeah, exactly. Like, the, the whole notion that God is responsible for all of this, if we're not going to consider the very foundations of what we believe, then where are we going? And so Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God, right? In the beginning, God. And so God is the beginning, He's the source. He's the crux of all of this. We can talk all day about what we think is divine or what we think comes from somewhere uh, about reality. But ultimately, if there's a God, he is responsible for this. And, and in fact, God needs to shape everything that we believe about himself. Wouldn't you agree? That God needs to shape everything that we believe about himself. It doesn't make sense to me that I would just theorize about who God is on my own, coming from my own heart, my own life, my own mind, 
and would reflect on God and then kind of say to him afterwards, is this okay with you? Does this fit with who you are? Because I think he would say to me, why did you start with your thoughts? Last time I checked, Kelly, your thoughts weren't so advanced. Like that's kind of what he might say to Job. Like where were you when I separated the waters? So it makes total sense to me that we would actually begin with God. But then when we start with God, what are we going to say about him? And I would say that normally when we ask about the very foundations and core that we wrestle with this notion of gospel and trinity. In fact, theologically, in history, these have been the two foundations that people have tended to gravitate toward in asking what is the very core of our faith. And if I was to say, it's a good chance because we're good Church of Christ people, Protestant people, if I was to ask you, what is the very core of our faith? If I hadn't put that up there on the screen already and I didn't use the word Trinity, there's a good possibility that somebody would say the gospel. Why would we do that? Okay, we don't talk about the Spirit much, okay? I think that's changing. I don't know if you were around, um, if you were still at Journey or if you were around when we did the whole series on the Holy Spirit here. Would you remember that? We did, like, we did a whole year on the Holy Spirit, which I think is an indication that things are changing, for sure. We're moving in a positive direction as far as that is concerned, too. But again, I think it's possible that if I said to this group of people, if I hadn't put the word gospel and trinity up there on the screen, if I would have said, what's the core of our faith? I think it's a good possibility that somebody would have said the gospel. Then they might have said Jesus, or they might have said Jesus on the cross, or they might have said Jesus dying on the cross for our sins so that we can go to heaven or something like that. But probably they would have said something along the lines of the gospel. When I first became a Christian, the number one question on the minds of the people in the Church of Christ that I was converted into in Albany, Oregon, the number one question was, how can you be saved? That was the issue. And of course, the the answer was, through the gospel. And so that was our core notion. The gospel and our salvation was was our main premise, our main foundation for where we centered ourselves. Well, is there a problem at all with that, Ronnie? Yeah, I would agree. James? It's also very me-centric. It is very me-centric. Sure. And we used to do this all the time. Like, I can remember those sermons when I was first converted. I don't know how often the preacher preached on how we're saved and the steps of salvation and all those kind of things. But it was often enough for me to see that there was a pattern here in our thinking, that there was an emphasis here. In fact, almost always it included Acts 2.38 because we wanted to talk all the time about not just how are we saved, but the role that baptism had in our salvation. That was huge and central for us. Now it's interesting, in evangelical Christianity, I think that this is still true, although it's tweaked a little bit. Like when you hear songs on the radio, you're listening to a a typical Christian radio song, um, nine times out of ten probably, 
or something like that, that song is probably going to be a song of praise written to Jesus for what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Now, of course, I'm not going to stand here and belittle what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Don't think that I am for a moment. But is that the place to start, is my question this morning. When evangelicalism, evangelicals, make the gospel and what Jesus did on the cross the absolute core of everything for them, is, is that really the thing that should be right at the core? And I'm, I'm questioning whether or not it should be, okay? Yeah. Yes. Right, because he's our mediator. So I understand that it probably is not it's not who God is but when we question who God is, we have to include how to get to him. Right? Isn't that yeah. through Jesus? Yeah. And I do think it yeah, I think it goes there pretty fast. I would agree. There are eighty nine. I, I just did a quick search on gospel in the New Testament, eighty nine scriptures. Right. I understand. Well, it's got to be pretty. It's got to be pretty central then. If there's 89 times where the where the expression euangelion or something like that gospel is used in the New Testament, that it's got to be pretty central. Um, I'm guessing if you did a quick search of the word God, it'd be even more than 89. Anyway, Mark. Yeah, I, I, I like the way that you have said that. I would agree. And of course, when Mark says that, he's not trying to say that the gospel is irrelevant. That's not the point at all. Of course not. But, but we're asking, what is the, what's the most prior question? What's the most foundational thing to everything when we're talking about our faith? And as I said, I, like I, you, know, you, you said a moment ago that we don't do much with the Holy Spirit, and I think that's changing but I can remember when I first became a Christian, we never talked about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was a retired author. Okay? The Holy Spirit was a retired author. He wrote a great book. It was a bestseller. It sold more copies than any other book in the history of the world. And after he wrote it, he retired. Didn't do anything else after he wrote that book. That's sometimes the way that we have treated the Holy Spirit, which I think is a huge mistake. And in fact, I would say, and we're going to head there in just a moment, that I think that the whole notion of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is in fact the key to everything. Is in fact the most foundational theological premise, idea, that there is. And it came from Him. It's not my idea that makes Him central. He's the one who makes himself central. He's the one who said, I am the Lord your God. He's the one who said, there are no other gods besides me. He's the one who said, worship 
the Lord your God and none other. Those things were foundational for Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. There's only one. And all of that is so foundational, I think, even more foundational than what we think of in terms of the gospel and our being saved and all that. Because, as Mark correctly pointed out, if we're not understanding who God is, the gospel, I don't know if it's irrelevant, but it would be a mystery that we would not get. We would not see the implications. be hard to sort out the significance of the gospel if you don't first have the significance of who God is. Steve? So, but the Israelites didn't see God as a trinity. That's true. That's true. He hadn't revealed himself in that way to them yet. It, and uh, by the way, I don't... And yet, the Spirit, I mean, when the Spirit moved, God's Spirit moved with the camp, I mean, I guess in some sense, that could have been the Spirit. Oh, yeah. 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 I've actually wondered if, um, I've wondered if the fire the cloud, all of that, is what you're talking about, isn't actually a manifestation of word, son, and spirit together. Uh, an ancient author, Irenaeus, used to talk about the word and the spirit as being the two hands of God as he attempts to reveal himself to humankind. Constantly, he's putting his hands into our world through the son and the spirit. And I think that's not bad. Anyway, my whole point here, when I raise the question of gospel and trinity, is to say, that the fact that God is who he is is what gives life to the gospel. The gospel is nothing standing apart from who God is. The Trinity, in fact, our Trinitarian God of Father, Son, and Spirit is the presupposition that makes the gospel meaningful. And so the gospel is, at times is everything for us. But the gospel really is nothing unless our Trinitarian God is first who he is. And so I want to talk about our Trinitarian God for a few moments this morning. Uh, Yeah, go ahead. It was Jesus that said, when I leave, I am going to send the Spirit. Wasn't it? Or did he say, God will send the Spirit? Well, the the Spirit comes from both the Father and the Son. Why are you asking the question? Because I've got something in my mind here when you in my question. I'm just curious that I mean, Jesus came, and then he left, and he told them he was leaving. Sure. He said, in my place, I'm sending my... Yeah, unless I go, he will not come, but he needs to come, yeah. I was just curious that, like, Jesus didn't say, God will send the Spirit. I think he's, I can't remember exactly. He does actually say that the Father will send the Spirit. He does, okay? The reason I think this is so interesting, you're asking the question, and this is a total sidelight, but you know, there are three major branches of Christianity. What are they? Catholicism, Protestantism, and? No. Evangelicalism is very much a part of Protestantism and... Yes, Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox. Do you know that the major separation between the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Western Churches, which is the Roman Roman Catholic Church and Protestantism, the major dividing line between our churches is who sent the Spirit? And it goes back to the ancient creeds, a word filioque, which means and the Son. And the text, or the, the text of the creed says that the Father sent the Spirit into the world. 
And then the, the creed was eventually developed a bit and it said the Father and the Son sent the Spirit into the world. And, and that was because there are some scriptures that teach both. And when they made that change from the Father sent the Son into the world to the Father and the Son sent, sent the Spirit into the world, the Eastern Church said, whoa, we can't handle that. It's only the Father who sends the Son. And the Western Church said, no, no, no. The Father and the Son send the Spirit. And the, and the churches, the Eastern Church and the Western Churches have been divided ever since then on that one word, filioque, which means and from the Son or and through the Son. The major, the, the biggest split in Christianity is over that. So that's interesting that you ask that question. Okay, what I want to do is I want to talk about the Trinity. And, you know, as soon as I say that, there's probably somebody out there who's thinking, oh, no. Really? We're just, not, you know, we're going to hear all this stuff about the Trinity? The word Trinity is not even in the Bible. Why are we doing this? Like, doesn't this take us off on some tangent that we're just going to get confused by? Because how can he be three and one and one and three anyway? We can't sort that out. It's all a mystery. So why are we even messing with this? And I totally disagree with your thinking. I actually think that this is crucial. I actually think it's really important that we get this down. Now, it's still in the end going to be a mystery. I'm not going to tell you that we're going to solve the mystery today of the Trinity. The church has been working on that for a couple of thousand years. Not made much progress, really. But I do want to say that the notion of Father, Son, and Spirit is incredibly important. And I think the New Testament actually makes it so. Now, the New Testament doesn't talk explicitly about the Trinity. You're not going to turn to a section in Ephesians chapter 3, and Paul says, and now let me talk to you about the mystery of the Trinity. And then he does for a couple of paragraphs. You're not going to find that. But there are implicit comments made all over the place about what well, about the fact that there is such a thing as Trinity. And so the Trinity is implicit, but not obscure. I would say that instead, the Trinity is present in all kinds of places. And so let me just look at some passages here. Um, real quick, just turn to Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, And I know we know this. In fact, let's do it this way. Who, who will turn to Matthew twenty-eight nineteen? Raise your hand, somebody. James, who will turn to... Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Somebody? Greg? Who will turn to 2 Corinthians 3, 16? Ken? Who will turn to Galatians 3, 11? John? Um, who will turn to Titus 3, 4? Lillian? Who will turn to uh, 1 Peter 1, 2? Ron? Let's start with those, okay? So who's got 2819? James, read it, please. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, the initial baptismal formula, the thing that initiates people into the church, is Trinitarian. I will baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When, when that was written, when Jesus said those words, to whom was he speaking? disciples. And who were they? What's that? Bunch of Jews. Bunch of Jews. How is it that Jesus can say to a bunch of Jews, we're going to start a new religion here, new faith, 
new relationship with God, we want you to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why is that a problem for a Jew? Who is the Son in comparison with God? They might have already decided that Jesus was the Son of God. They might have already said something to themselves about the Holy Spirit because Jesus had already talked about the Spirit. But we all know that in comparison to God, the Son and the Spirit could not possibly have a position where God is. And as soon as you baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, you are placing the Son and the Spirit on the same level as God because that's in whom you're baptizing. Name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're raising them right up with the Father. No Jew would allow that. No Jew. And certainly not Messiah. Jesus himself is not going to allow that to be the case unless one thing is true. And what's that? That they are. That That the Father, Son, and Spirit are together God. That's the only explanation I can think of why they would allow for the baptismal formula to include all three unless all three are together in their divinity. Steve? But they did see the Spirit come down from God on Jesus when Jesus was baptized. Yes. So they would have seen the Spirit. So the, the word Spirit, in that sense, would not have been strange. The well, no. No, I agree with that. In fact, in, in John, uh, what is it, John 18, Jesus says to the, to the disciples, receive the Spirit, and he breathes on them, it says, the Spirit. So yeah, they were familiar with that. John 14, 15, and 16 are full of language about the Holy Spirit. So yeah, they're, they're certainly acquainted with all of that. But to put the Spirit and the Son on the same level with the Father, forget it. Not if you're a Jew. Unless, of course, they're God. <laughs> and that changes everything. And I think that's what Jesus was teaching. Somebody else, uh, what do we do? 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Somebody read that. Okay, so there is one God and Father through whom all things came and through whom we live. There is one Lord through whom Jesus Christ, through whom we came and through whom we live. Now, you can say, well, there's a Father and there's a Lord. Isn't there a distinction there? But what do they do? What's the end of each one of those lines of description about what God is doing in them? Through whom, what does it say? Through whom we live and from whom we are, from I, I'm not remembering the exact words. What does it say, Heather? For whom we live, For whom we live and through whom we... All things, All things came. Okay, my point is, they have the same role. Like Paul has just described the Father and the Son as being of equal significance to us in terms of our connection to God. How could he possibly do that? This is a Pharisee. He knows who God is. He knows the Ten Commandments. He knows you don't put anybody on the same plane as Yahweh. And he just did. That's amazing that Paul would do that. That's a Trinitarian statement. Second Corinthians chapter 3, who's got that? Ken. Maybe I gave you the wrong passage. Oh, okay, yeah. There's another passage I was thinking of, sorry. Uh, yeah. Read the, would you read for me, please, the whole thing, verses 16 through 18? 
Listen to this language. This is really incredible. What? What? The Lord is, twice in that passage it says the Lord is the Spirit. Now, there's two things you can do with this. One is the, the word Lord, kurios in Greek, is the word that's translated in the New Testament for the Hebrew word Yahweh. So whenever, in this, there's a, there is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Whenever the Greek translation of the Old Testament sees the word Yahweh, it translates that kurios. And here, Kyrios, Lord, is said to be the Spirit. That's a Trinitarian kind of statement. Making the Spirit Yahweh. And then if you wanted to define Lord as Jesus, which we so often do in the New Testament, then at the very least you have to say the Spirit is Jesus. And so the Spirit and the Lord are one. Who would say that? Not some guy who used to be a Pharisee, but he does, okay? Uh, the passage I was thinking of that I actually thought I had given Ken was 2 Corinthians uh, thirteen fourteen. If somebody wants to turn there, 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen, and we'll come back to that in just a moment. Did I give Galatians 3 to somebody? John, read Galatians three eleven. Okay, keep reading. Sorry, I'm not giving you enough. Uh, keep reading. Down through verse 14. The law is not based on the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on the tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Okay. So if you were to read that passage, 11 through 14, and kind of pay attention and just ask yourself, well, who is God and what is he doing in this passage? All three members of the Trinity are mentioned. And it's specifically in a context of the gospel. Like, we talked earlier, just a moment ago, about whether the gospel is the center of our faith or God is. Well, in that very passage, the gospel is discussed in very specific detail about what God has done, and he does it Trinitarianly. And so the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all three mentioned in that passage by Paul, who's talking about the salvation of humankind through the gospel. And again, like who does this? The Pharisee does this, using this Trinitarian language to describe what God has done. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Whoever's got that, read down th- verses 4 through 7, Lily. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having 
the hope of eternal life. Okay, again, this, this is a direct parallel to Galatians chapter 3, verses 11 through 14. She just read Titus 5 through, uh, chapter 3, 5 through 7, or 4 through 7. This is simply a statement of the gospel. This is what God has done. That's all that is. It even talks about baptism because it talks about the washing of regeneration. But that whole passage is infused with Trinitarian language. It is God through Christ and his spirit who is working out this salvation for us. And so again, if we're going to talk about gospel, we can't talk about gospel without talking about Trinity because it's so present in it. Okay, First Peter 1, 2, somebody's got 